Hey there, my name is Ryan Hughley, and I'm lead pastor of Ridgeline Church in Salt Lake City, Utah. Thanks for checking out our podcast. Our goal is to help as many people as possible meet and mature in the Jesus of the Bible. For more information about our ministry, visit our website at ridgeline.church. If you enjoy the podcast, consider subscribing on the platform of your choice. Thanks again for listening, and I pray God's Spirit uses this message to revive you in a fresh way. start this morning talking about the awesome privilege of participating in something that is bigger than you. Maybe you've had an opportunity uh, to do that, to participate in something you knew you could like feel in your bones. This is so much bigger than just me. Uh, the truth is when we get to participate in something bigger than ourselves, it has significant effects in our lives. It increases the depth of meaning in what we're doing. It provides greater purpose when we're a part of something that the scope and the size feels bigger than us. It also contextualizes sacrifice for us in that we're willing to make even deep cuts because it feels worth it because what we're a part of is bigger than just us. It's an awesome privilege to participate in something bigger than you. And uh, one way I was thinking about this uh, over the last week is one thing we've done through quarantine is we've been watching all the Marvel movies with our kids in chronological order. There's 22 films, if you're wondering. So we've been super committed to this. And last weekend, we finally came to Avengers Endgame. And so it was a big deal. Like I, I, I was, we were emotional going into it, not even because of the movie, just because it's been a long journey for us. And so if you haven't seen it, I don't know what to tell you. I won't, I won't ruin it for you, but you should probably go watch that today. Um, and there, the good news is if you have not seen any, there's only 22. So just start it by, by 2021, you'll be to Endgame. It'll be great. But we were watching, and there's this scene at the end, deeply emotional, climactic scene at the end of Avengers Endgame. And it has uh, almost all of the characters from all the major characters from these films all in one place at one time. And so I, I had this thought as we were watching it. My first thought was like, this must be the most expensive scene in any in movie history. It's like 30 of the highest paid actors in Hollywood all in one place at the same time. And then right after thinking that, Tammy said, man, it must have been so amazing for these people to get to be a part of something so big. And the truth is, if you listen to interviews with people that have been attached to these projects, they all attest to that, how special it has been, how meaningful it has been to be a part of something that is so much bigger than just them. It's been 22 films, just over a decade. People like Robert Downey Jr., who plays Iron Man, has been attached to this for years prior to that. They've worked so hard to get to this point. And so you have to imagine that standing in that moment, in that scene, which come to find out they didn't even understand what was happening. They didn't even know what they were shooting in that scene. They just knew they were all together, and it was a big deal. And it was an overwhelming moment for them because it's a privilege to be aware that you are participating in something that is so much bigger than you are. Now, the problem is the inverse of that is true also, meaning it's easy to despise things that feel small. And as time goes on, I think this is one reason being a follower of Jesus becomes so much more difficult in our culture. It seems that with every day that goes by, the chasm between those who choose to follow Jesus and the majority culture continues to widen. And as that chasm widens, the more we are left looking at our side of it as followers of Jesus and realizing there just aren't that many of us comparatively. 
Sometimes it does not feel, as a follower of Jesus living in our day and in our culture, it doesn't always feel like we're part of some cosmic plan of God to redeem all things. It feels like it's just a couple of us. And you might feel this uniquely if you're maybe like a first-generation Christian in your family. I'm blessed. I come from like three generations of followers of Jesus. Some of you are the first follower of Jesus in your family. You're the only one. And you probably feel that uniquely. In fact, I would argue that we feel that uniquely just because we live here in Salt Lake City. Bible-believing disciples of Jesus make up less than 2% of our population. And so that means percentage-wise, there are fewer Bible-believing Christians in Salt Lake City than any other city in America. And that can leave many of us feeling isolated and alone because we are part of such a minority culture in our own city. Now, the reassuring news is that this is actually not unique to our particular time in history, and it's not unique to our particular culture. Peter, 2,000 years ago, is writing to a group of Christ followers who were living as a severe minority in their time. And so as we jump back into 1 Peter 2 this morning, Peter's going to remind us that regardless of the size of any one local church, Regardless of how many Christians live in any particular city, regardless of what percentage of a culture is made up of genuine Jesus followers, we are a part of something that is so much bigger than ourselves. And so I want to show you that, and I want to talk about why that matters. And so if you have a Bible and you haven't, open to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible this morning, it's all going to be on the screen, so you can follow along there. But I want to call this message Bigger Than You bigger than you. And while you're finding uh, 1 Peter, before we jump into these verses, I want to give just a little bit more historical context that explains why Peter writes what he writes specifically in our text this morning. So in our day, uh, many of you probably know this, but you know that Christianity remains the largest religious faith in the world. Roughly one-third of the world's population identifies with one of the three major streams of Christianity. So one-third of the world's population identifies as either Catholic, Protestant, which is what we are, um, or Orthodox. So one-third of the world's population, we are still the largest faith religion in the world. But in Peter's day, that was so far from the case. It's easy for us to forget this side of history, but the early Christians, first century Christians, were mainly a minority offshoot of Judaism. And so for hundreds of years, the Jewish people had been waiting for this long-promised Messiah of the Old Testament. And while more and more Jews and Gentiles began to follow the way of Jesus over time, even as their numbers increased in Peter's day, they were still such a small percentage comparatively. And so this raised a question that was common in Peter's day. It was some version of this question. How exactly could this Jesus be the fulfillment of the messianic promises of the Old Testament as they claimed if so few Jews acknowledged him as such? Which is a pretty fair question. I mean, if Jesus fulfilled all these Old Testament messianic promises, of which there are hundreds why were such a small percentage of the Jewish people following him? I mean, they had been, they knew the promises, they had their eyes open, they were looking intently for hundreds of years for this Messiah to come onto the scene. And then Jesus comes, begins to do all these amazing things. People are claiming he is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies, but percentage wise, such a small number 
of Jewish people began to follow Jesus. And so that question created a dilemma for Christians living in Peter's day. This question and doubt started to, to seep into their minds of like, well, what, what if this isn't actually true? What if Jesus is not who I've been told he is? And so what Peter's trying to do is he's trying to pastor these early Christians on at least two fronts. One is theological and the other one is deeply emotional. And so his theological objective is twofold. He wants to show them from the Old Testament itself how Jesus was in fact the fulfillment of all of these promises and that they should not be surprised by how few people were surrendering their lives and following him because the Old Testament predicted that as well. Now his emotional objective was to encourage them. He wanted to encourage them by helping them to see that they were a part, regardless of their numbers, they were a part of God's plan that was so much bigger than just them. And the truth is, we need that encouragement too. And so rather than leave us with our heads drooping in discouragement, Peter wants to lovingly lift our chins so that we can see the full scope of who God is and what he's doing, and what exactly we're all caught up in. And so just by way of, of overview, here's how he's going to do that, okay? So in the first two verses, verses 4 and 5, he seeks to shape our imaginations by casting a vision for how exactly we are a critical part in God's cosmic plan for creation. And then in verses 6 through 8, Peter's going to point back to three Old Testament texts that actually predicted that the Messiah would be a massive stumbling block for a great sum of people. And then finally in verses 9 and 10, he's going to seek to shape our imaginations more, drawing from rich Old Testament language to show us how as followers of Jesus today, we are a new expression of these uh, timeless identities. All right, so let's jump into that. We're going to start in verses four and five. Read with me. Peter writes this. He says, as you come to him, so he's speaking of Jesus here, as you come to Jesus, a living stone rejected by people, but chosen and honored by God, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house are being built to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So Peter starts by reminding these people who are feeling intensely rejected by the culture around them that they follow a Messiah who himself was also rejected. John 1.11 speaks of Jesus, and John writes this. He says, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. See, sometimes I think that we forget that one of the chief marks of Jesus' earthly ministry was actually rejection. We think about the crowds, we think about the miracles, we think about the healings, we think about all the, we think about the movement that was started as a result of his earthly ministry, but we forget that one of the chief marks of his real-time earthly ministry was actually rejection. He was rejected by his family. No one in his family believed he was who he said he was. His mom a little bit, and I think even she was a little confused, but his brothers certainly did not. We know that from the text. He was rejected by these consumeristic crowds who followed him while it was convenient for them and then rejected him when it was not. He was rejected by the religious leaders of his day. So Jesus was familiar with rejection. And the truth is, I don't think there's probably any of us that are not familiar with some form of rejection. 
and no one enjoys being rejected. Rejection cuts, it stings, it hurts, and it hurts because we were never meant to experience it. Rejection is contrary to God's creative plan for this world. But when sin entered the world, rejection came with it. And when that happened, rejection became a normative human experience, and Jesus was no exception to that. But the good news is, despite being rejected by so many, Jesus was chosen and honored by God, Peter says, and God will always have the final word. And I want you to know, just by way of of implication for you and I, that's true for you too. Some of us sit here this morning, and one of the chief scars that mark us is one of being rejected by someone that was meaningful to us. So it could be someone that you were like crazy about and you asked on a date and they said no and man, I don't care how old you are when that happens, that, that'll, you'll be talking about that in therapy in your 50s still. That cuts deep. Some of us know what it is to be rejected by a parent, someone that brought you into the world and then left. Some have been rejected by a spouse that stood before God and friends, promising, covenanting, to stay with you until the end, and they rejected you and they left. Rejection is a normative human experience, but it is unnatural because God never intended for us to experience it. And the good news is God gets the final word, even in our rejection. You have been chosen by God. And if you are a follower of Jesus, you will receive honor from God no matter how much human rejection you experience in your life. And I promise you on the day that that God speaks those words over you, well done, my good and faithful servant. All of those scars that exist from human rejection will be no more. And so that will come for us. And our new identity points to this high honor that we have been given because notice that Peter uses three metaphors to shape our imaginations and our understanding of who we are. And so he says that we are living stones, a spiritual house, and a holy priesthood. So I want to think about these three things for just a second. Peter says first that we are living stones, a spiritual house. Now when Peter uses the metaphor of a spiritual house, understand he has in mind the temple that would have sat in his time in Jerusalem. Now the temple was the very center of religious life for Jewish people. It was a place of prayer and it was a place of worship, but most importantly, it was the most tangible expression of God's very presence with his people. And so when they came to the temple for worship, they came knowing God has chosen to dwell on earth with we, his people. And so Peter is saying here that every person who comes to faith is like a living stone, a brick that is added to the new temple of God's people where his very presence now dwells. That's us. Uh, About 17, 18 years ago, I had the privilege of going on a short 10-day service trip to Peru where uh, we were invited to come and to help build a church by hand in the Andes Mountains, which was, it was an incredible experience. And it was some of the most back-breaking work I've ever done in my life. We were just there 10 days. I lost 12 pounds. Uh, many of us, I know, are feeling like I could sign up for that 10-day diet right now. That'd be great. Um, but it was back-breaking work because we literally had to form these bricks by hand 
carry them over, and then set them on top of one another. And we did that for 10 days, all day, sun up, sun down, 10 days. That's all we did was put brick on brick on brick, building this church for this village that did not have a place for them to be able to worship. And I got to tell you, it was an overwhelming experience after just 10 days to look at what had just been this empty lot that now after the work that we had done, there stood a church where these people could come together and could worship Jesus. And in a very, very real sense, this is exactly what Peter says that God is doing with you and me. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are a critical stone that God is using to house his very presence on this earth. As, as post-resurrection followers of Jesus, as Christians, we don't have a temple. We don't have a physical, one physical space on this earth where God is only there. You know where God is? God is, dwells in the midst of every single place where there is any number of Christians dwelling together in community. That's where God's presence lives on this earth. And so it's an incredible privilege for us to be a part of that. Furthermore, Peter says, we were meant to be part of God's holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices to God. Now, that's not something that many of us are probably super familiar with. Paul, in Romans 12, 1, sheds a little bit more light on what this means. He says, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. So make no mistake, to follow Jesus is to be a priest in the sense that we are to offer sacrifices with our lives, not of animals and grain like in the Old Testament, but these daily surrenderings of our thoughts, of our wills, our plans, our desires, our attitudes, our decisions, and our values to God. Every time we do that, we are making a sacrifice to him. And this is also why we don't make priesthood a special office of leadership within the Protestant stream of the Christian church. If you are a Christian, you are also a priest in that sense. So a priest is not to Christianity what special ops are to the military. It isn't meant to be some like exclusive office that a few of us aspire to. It's an identity that every single one of us are called to embody. And so here's a really important and I think practical implication in all of this for us. If you like to write things down, you might want to make a note of this. Following Jesus means joining a family. Following Jesus means joining a family. And I believe that that simple truth is one of the things that is most lost due to the rise of technology. We forget sometimes that following Jesus does not mean listening to a podcast alone. It means joining a family, specifically a local church family. The Bible has, you will not find it, the Bible has no category for a follower of Jesus that is not deeply connected to a local church family. That is not in the Bible. Now, I'm not saying that you can't be a Christian and not be a member of a local church. What I am saying is the New Testament does not present us with that category, indicating that it was never part of Christ's plan for us. And this is one reason that the inability to gather physically during this COVID season has been so hard for so many. Having to be isolated from one another physically is literal violence against our souls. It's not what we were created for. We were never created to experience that. 
And this is why I have such a love-hate relationship with the online worship thing. I love that we have been able to all stay connected through this to God's word together. I'm very, very thankful for that. But I hate that it's all that some people have been able to experience for going on seven months now. We have people in our church right now that still cannot come and gather physically because they are at risk. And so their only experience of being a part of our church family is like a 50-minute YouTube thing. And I, I hate that for them because it's subhuman. It's a helpful tool, but it is sub-Christian. It's not when Jesus hung on the cross, he was not thinking, YouTube, this is, YouTube is going to be the way that my church continues to connect. And I know, man, there are some churches that are just all fired up about everything happening online, and I'm just like, I could never shoot a YouTube video in my whole life ever again and be okay. I'd rather gather in this tiny room with 30 people over and over for the rest of my life than pastor a church on the internet. And not just because it sucks experientially, but because it's not a biblical way for us to function in ideal circumstances. And so what I want to continue to stress upon us is that we would prioritize gathering for worship on Sundays physically where we can and right now, that looks like this. And I've said, I will do as many of these as we have to do in order to provide a space for people to worship physically. But in addition to this, find meetups to be a part of and to, to participate in. And come to prayer uh, on Wednesday nights when we have that. And have meals with one another. Go out to lunch if you feel comfortable and safe doing that as well. But we are called to be connected as a family and to live in actual, genuine friendship with one another. And these little decisions, these small decisions, are all ways that we play our part in this plan that is so much bigger than any of us individually. And I want you to notice how Peter points back to these promises about Christ in the Old Testament in order to explain so much of the present rejection of Jesus that we still experience in our culture today. Look at verse 6. For it stands in Scripture... And then notice, he's going to quote from three different places in the Old Testament. One is Isaiah 28, the other is Psalm 118, and then the third is Isaiah 8. So he says this, it stands in Scripture, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone, and the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. So honor will come to you who believe, which is an amazing promise. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the cornerstone and a stone to stumble over, a rock to trip over. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this, which we'll come back to in just a second. Now, there's a bunch happening in those three verses, so let me just summarize it for you. In essence, Peter is showing us that the Old Testament never actually promised that the arrival of Jesus the Messiah would mean instantaneous mass reception of him. Instead, the Old Testament actually promised that Jesus would uh, not only be the source of redemption, but he would also be the great obstacle to it. And so let me break that down. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second member of the Trinity, is the source of redemption. He is the cornerstone of the church. And so Jesus' life, death, and resurrection makes new life accessible to anyone. Anyone can come to Jesus and be redeemed. There is no one that is excluded from that. He is the source of redemption. The challenge is, the Bible says that Jesus is the source. He is the option 
He is the way. And the exclusivity of that also makes him the great obstacle for so many. See, contrary to what is culturally popular, God has not presented himself to us as people in this like choose-your-own-adventure sort of way. Um, Maybe you read those books when you were a kid, but if you didn't have those, basically they were these thin books, and you'd read this story, and the characters in it would come to a crisis point at the end of a chapter, and then you would be presented with a choice as to what they decided and where they would go, and your choice determined the outcome. And uh, Bear Grylls has come up with a new version of this on Netflix. If you haven't checked out, I highly recommend it. It's called You vs. Wild. So you get to go on an adventure with Bear Grylls in the wild, and he comes to a crisis point. And then you as the audience member get to choose which decision he makes in this crisis, and your choice determines his outcome. My kids love it, but they are masochistic and sick, and they always choose the darkest scariest, meanest thing they can for Bear Grylls every time, and they gloat about it. And so I'm not sure what that says about them or my parenting, but that, that's what happens when we watch it. But my point is, these types of stories, we, one of the reasons that people are drawn to them is it puts all the authority in your hands by presenting you with multiple options. It gives us control. But when it comes to relationship with God, he has simply not given us that freedom. Jesus Christ is the source acceptable to all, but according to the Bible, he is the only source. And so that's why you might hear people say, Christianity is both the most inclusive and exclusive faith that there is, because it's accessible to anyone. But we believe that the Bible says that there is one means by which we come to God, and that's through Jesus. He is the only source, which is why Isaiah 8.14, which Peter just quoted from, called Jesus the stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. Stepping into new life in God means doing so through faith in Jesus. Now that all being said, I do want to draw your attention to verse 8 again because it's a hard verse. And I never want to be guilty of skipping over hard verses and being like, look at these verses, not that one because that one's weird. Okay, we never want to do that. We want to face hard verses head on. And verse 8 is a hard verse because notice again, Peter says they stumble because they disobey the word. Now listen to this. They were destined for this. Now for centuries, the meaning of this phrase, they were destined for this, has been debated by scholars. And some people take it to mean that God, in eternity past, predestined certain people to reject faith in Jesus. So essentially, some believe that God destined people to spend eternity apart from him in hell. Now, for understandable reasons, this has caused a moral dilemma in many followers of Jesus. We struggle to understand why a good God would or even could do such a thing. But the truth is the moral dilemma is not the only reason that there's been so much debate. There's also a textual problem. See, in the original Greek, this is going to sound kind of nerdy, but it's super important here. In the original Greek, the grammatical antecedent that explains what they were destined for is unclear. And because of that, we're left with a question. Is Peter saying that on the one hand, people were destined to disobey, mean that God chose for them, they are going to reject Jesus? Or were they simply destined to stumble due to the fact that they rejected Jesus? 
And so there is a big difference between these two interpretations. And the truth is, and I know this is really hard for many of us, due to the grammatical issue, we don't know which one it is for sure. And if I could just release you to have there be certain things in the Bible that you don't know, I would love to do that. It's okay. Like we can tell you, doesn't mean God's not real. Doesn't mean Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It just means there's some stuff we don't know. This book was written a couple thousand years ago in three languages none of us speak. Across like a 1,400-year period, there are going to be some things that we read and we go, huh? And that's okay. But what I do want to do is I want to help us understand how we should respond to interpretations that are not 100% clear. So let me give you three things we should do when an interpretation like this is unclear. And this is going to be so important for your relationship with God moving forward in relationship to the scriptures. Because there's going to be times you come to something and you're like, I don't know what that means. And then as you dig in and study, it comes, you come to find out that for thousands of years, people have been debating and disagreeing about what certain things mean. So what do we do when that happens? Here's the first thing. Hold a humble conviction in an open hand. Hold a humble conviction in an open hand. Because we don't know with 100% certainty, we have to be very careful about making assumptions, especially in cases like this. We're forced to make an assumption because we don't have 100% clarity. Having a conviction forces you to make an assumption, in this case, about the very nature and character of God. And so we can have a conviction, and I would argue you should have a conviction, but we should hold it with humility in an open hand because, and again, I know this is very difficult for some of us, we could be wrong. And so we hold it humbly. Brilliant, educated people who love Jesus deeply have debated and disagreed on this for years. So humility seems prudent. Agreed? So that's the first thing. Hopefully we agree there was zero response from any of you. So I will move forward under the assumption we are in agreement on that point, okay? So first, we hold a humble conviction in an open hand. And secondly, always allow God to be bigger than your understanding. Always allow God to be bigger than your understanding. Now, listen, I personally... I personally don't believe that Peter is saying that God predestined people to reject Jesus. I personally believe that that would contradict the rest of the scripture's teaching on the nature, heart, and plan of God. Now, you might completely disagree with me on that. And you might think that Peter is saying that God predestined people to reject Jesus. But regardless, regardless of which side you take on that, we both always have to allow the possibility that God is bigger than whatever our understanding is. We have to allow that possibility. It is pure arrogance to insist that we can understand everything about God's nature. God himself said through the prophet Isaiah, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You and I are not God. We don't understand everything about him, and that's okay. And so we can allow that, again, to lead us to a place of humility. So hold a humble conviction and an open hand. Secondly, allow God to be bigger than our understanding. And then here's the third, and this is very important. Double down on all we do know when there's something we don't. Double down on what we do know when there's something we don't. We cannot allow a lack of certainty on this singular verse to distract us from what is, in fact, abundantly clear. 
What Peter and these Old Testament references make clear is that rejecting Christ results in eternal ruin. That is the overarching point. And so we can humbly debate the merits of particular interpretations of this one verse, but we can't miss the far more important point that Peter is trying to make. And the truth is we have to be careful not to do that with the whole Bible. Oftentimes we want to discuss and debate the merits of all of these different theological positions all the while never really paying attention to the basic things of like, have I submitted to Jesus in all the actual areas of my life. And instead, we want to debate about the minutia of all of these different things. And, and meanwhile, our lives are not even in basic submission to God. And so I would never say that even the minutia doesn't matter. It does. But it doesn't matter as much as what is fundamental to our faith. And this particular verse does not matter as much, your interpretation of it does not matter as much as the overarching point that Peter's trying to make here. The entirety of Scripture, both Old Testament and New report, that rejecting Christ the Messiah results in eternal ruin. And so, as we finish out, notice how Peter bombards our imaginations again with the very language used to describe the people of God throughout the Old Testament. I'm not going to list them all, but, but Peter literally pulls from dozens of different places in the Old Testament in making this list. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's chosen people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And those two verses are maybe the most succinct description of who we are as the people of God. We are a chosen race. We are a royal priesthood. We are a holy nation. We are a people for God's own possession. We were not a people, and now we are God's people. We had not received mercy, but now we have. And so while the specifics of our individual stories all vary, the story of God's plan for our collective identity does not. We were all once separated from relationship with God. But God chose to show us mercy and to make us his own by sending his son Jesus to surrender his life for ours so we could surrender ours to his. And the moment that we made that decision, we became part of something that was so much bigger than just us. And if I were going to summarize what that is, it would be this. This is our big idea. Every Christian plays a part in housing God's presence. Every Christian, every Christian, every local church, in every place, at every point in human history, every Christian plays a part in housing God's presence. And this is why things like division in the local church are so important. Because when we, when we choose to divide, when we choose to infight and relationship begins to deteriorate, inside of a local church. We're taking the, these bricks that Jesus shed his blood to create and we're yanking them out. And this is what I think is so broken about the tendency to, to jump from like one church to another church or to attend seven churches at one time. Or It's what's broken about it. 
We're meant to be a part of a family. Jesus shed his blood for that, not just to give a golden ticket to individuals to spend eternity with him in heaven. He gave his life and shed his blood to make us one, to connect us to one another. And so it matters that we fight for unity. It matters that we don't be like the majority culture that is maybe more divided right now than any point in history. Although we hung out a week ago and you told me the Civil War was probably a more divided time in our culture, and I submit to that. That was a really good point. It was probably worse during that. But we'll see. As this, as this election gets closer, I just, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm ready to fight. That's all I got to say. But in all seriousness, our culture is so divided over you pick the thing. And one of the most distinctly Christian things that we could do is don't divide about that stuff. And that doesn't mean don't care, and that doesn't mean don't talk, and it doesn't mean don't discuss, it doesn't mean don't hold your convictions deeply, it means don't divide over that stuff, because it's not as important. It's important, but it's not as important. We are a part of something bigger than all that. And we don't look like Christians when we choose to follow the way of the world and to divide. Every Christian plays a part in housing God's presence. So our relationships with one another matter. And so to that end, I just want to close with two very simple questions. And the first question, which is the most I would argue the most important question we will ever answer in our lives. And that question is just simply, have you received this mercy? Have you received this mercy? Have you surrendered your life by faith to Jesus, the cornerstone, the source of new life? Because if you have not, I want you to hear him this morning inviting you to come to him and find mercy and rest for your soul. You might still have questions and doubts. Your life might be an objective mess. You might be living in the wake of horrible mistakes that you've made. You might sit here right now carrying the shame on your shoulders of horrible sin that has been committed against you by another person. And regardless, I want you to know that none of that need keep you from Jesus. And so come to him this morning and find mercy and if you've already received that mercy, the second question for you is this. What is it going to look like for you to offer your life as a sacrifice of worship this week? One of my great disdains is the tendency in us to come to the scriptures, to listen to a message like this and go, amen, that's all true and good, and then walk away and do nothing in response. The Bible demands a response from us. And so what will it look like to offer your life as a sacrifice of worship this week? What is one concrete way, one specific attitude, emotion, decision, or behavior that needs to change in surrender to Jesus' better way? Because understand, that is worship. You can come here physically every week for the rest of your life, and you can sing these songs as loud as you want. And if you leave this place and your life is not further surrendered, what you do in here does not matter. It doesn't matter. Because we're called to more than sermons and songs. 
We're called to lives surrendered to a way and to a person. And so what is the one concrete way this week that the Spirit of God would call you to surrender further to Jesus? Because that's how we play our part in this amazing story that God has written for this world and for our lives. So what will it look like for you to offer your life as a sacrifice this week? Every Christian plays a part in housing God's presence. So let's be a church where God is pleased to house his presence in our midst. I love you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the privilege and the honor of being your sons and daughters. It is grace and it is mercy that you have given us that privilege. It's not something that we earn. It's not something that we deserve. It's a gift. And so we say thank you. And Lord, if there's anyone here or anyone listening who has not received that gift, I pray right now that you would awaken their heart to faith. And that by your grace, as best they know how, they would surrender their heart to you and choose to follow you. And Lord, for those of us that have done that, we want to continue to offer our lives as sacrifices to you. We want to be your vision of this holy priesthood who lives to worship you. And we understand that the songs we sing are such a small part of that, that you've invited us and, and, and called us and shed your blood so that we could offer our entire lives to you. And so, Lord, we all are a long way from having reached that point. And so I just pray that your spirit would make clear to us one concrete way this week that you're calling us to further surrender to you. And then we ask that you would give us the grace and the help necessary to be able to do that. And Lord, I pray that, that Ridgeline Church would be a place that you are anxious to house your presence. Because we love you and because we love one another. And despite our many faults and our many flaws, we choose to stay surrendered to you. And so, Lord, how's your presence here? And draw more people to yourself here. We love you, and we need your help. In Jesus' name, amen.